0: Today, as we continue in the book of Acts, we're going to see the ascension of Paul as the leader of the traveling missionaries. From here on, it's no longer Barnabas and Saul, it's Paul and his companions. We're also going to get to hear a summary of Paul's very first recorded sermon to the Jews. It was a message preached in the synagogue, as was Paul's normal custom. Paul was a Jew. He loved the Jews. He had a great desire to see them saved. So as soon as he arrived in a city, he went straight to the synagogue on that very first Sabbath. And the reason he did was because it was customary to allow visiting teachers the right to address the congregation. So Paul knew he would have a a good-sized audience. And even though he had just arrived he was invited to speak. Now, the the synagogue in that day was more than just a house of worship. It was the center of of Jewish community life. So there was always going to be lots of people there, and, and, and Paul loved that. We also know that his message had dramatic results. Luke records for us later on in this chapter in verse 44 that almost the whole city gathered on the following Sabbath To hear the word of the Lord. Now, we've got 39 verses to go through today. So, what we're going to do is we're going to read a section, talk about it, read another section, talk about it. And then at the end, we're going to try to pull it all together with some application that uh, hopefully impacts us all. So, if you haven't already, open your Bibles to the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible, uh, all of the verses are going to be up on the screen. And if you really like one, go over to the bookstore. And when you're buying those 70% off, we'll give you a free Bible. So let's read uh, verses 13 through 16. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Now, there are two cities of Antioch that are mentioned in chapter 13. The first in verse one is the Antioch in Syria from which the missionaries were originally sent. The one mentioned here in verse 14 is in the region of Pisidia. That's in Galatia, which is modern day Turkey. Now, the city is located just north of the Taurus Mountains. It's rather a remote place, but there was a large Jewish population there. We also know that there were more than just Jews in the synagogue. When Paul says, you who fear God, he's referring to God-fearing Gentiles who were allowed to kind of sit at the back of the synagogue and, and, and hear what was going on. Now, in verse 15 here, we get to see uh, a typical order of service in a synagogue in that day. It would start with a prayer, a, a specific prayer. And, uh, Tony, checked me out on this. It was, Baruch ata Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher Shonu, ba'mitzvot tzav v'tzivano l'hadlik ne'er shel Shabbat. Now, what that means is, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the Universe, who has taught us the way of holiness by his commandments, including observing the Sabbath. So after the prayers would come a reading from the law, and that was very oftentimes the Shema, which is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, you had prayers, you had a reading from the law, then you had a reading from the prophets, and then it was followed uh, by uh, a, an address from a competent speaker. Paul was a student of the famous Rabbi Gamaliel, so he would have been considered highly, highly, highly qualified. Now, what we get here is just a, a summary of, of Paul's sermon. It only takes about three minutes to read. And we know from other passages in Acts that Paul could be rather long-winded. In fact, there was uh, one section where he was preaching and a, guy, a young guy was sitting in a windowsill and he fell asleep and fell right out the window. So a three-minute sermon was not his typical. Um, but what we're going to do is we're going to read it um, in, in sections and, and talk about it. So back to Acts 13, now to verse 16. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years, and after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all of my will. So, like Stephen's message in Acts 7, Paul starts his message with an Old Testament history lesson. But did you notice that that this history lesson um, centers on God's activity on behalf of Israel? In fact, in those seven verses, he gives nine specific things that God did for Israel throughout their history. First, he says in verse 17 that God chose them. Then he says that God made them prosper while they were in Egypt early on. And then he says after they were taken into slavery, God led them out of slavery. And then in verse 18, he says that God endured their grumbling for 40 years in the desert. Then in verse 19, he says God defeated the seven nations that lived in the land and God gave them the land of Canaan. Then in verse 20, he says he gave them judges to lead them. And then in verses 21 and 22, he says he gave them Saul to be their king Then he had to remove Saul and he gave them David, Israel's greatest king. So, God's care for Israel has always been a source of interest and pride to the Jewish people, even even to this day. In fact, it was God's redemption of Israel from slavery in Egypt that convinced me that there really was a God and it began my journey as a Jewish person to find out who this God really is. You see, I was taking a a Civil War history class at the University of Massachusetts and our professor made it very clear that it took the bloodiest war in the nation's history in order to end slavery. Yet that made me think that it was a historical fact that the Jews just walked out of Egypt. They were slaves, there was no battle, there were no wars, they just left. And I realized that had to be as a result of the intervention of God on behalf of Israel. I guess the reason I was thinking about it is, uh, about a year before that I was sitting in my dorm um, studying and two guys walked into my room, uh, and they looked at the wall, and there was a poster on the wall that said, "I believe in God even when He is silent." And they said, "Hey, do you really believe in God?" And I said, "Eh, I don't know. It's it's just a cool poster." And they said, "Well, we'd like to tell you how you can have a personal relationship with God." And I said, "I'm um, no. I'm sorry. That's not possible. I'm a Jew." I can't even write the word God. I have to write G space D. I can't even be in the direct presence of God. When I go to a synagogue, I have to put a yarmulke on my head because I can't have direct access to God. And you're telling me I can have a personal relationship with God? That's just not possible. I said, but we'd like to tell you how you can. I I, I didn't feel like studying anymore. So I said, okay. Well, just at that moment, my roommate who was Catholic uh, walked into the dorm. Uh, into the room, and he didn't feel like studying either, so he sat down to listen. So they pulled out this little pamphlet. It was a little orange booklet. It was called Four Spiritual Laws, All right. and they started to go through it page by page. I, it meant nothing to me. Uh, I didn't understand a word they said, honestly, but my roommate, somehow, God grabbed a hold of his heart while he listened to that story, and he said, what do I need to do to have that? And they said, Let's get down on our knees and let's pray. And I'm I'm kind of sitting there going, oh boy. What's this all about? Well, they prayed together and Alan's life completely changed. So I did the only thing that was reasonable in my mind. I, I moved out. <laughs> I moved in with another guy who about halfway through the semester I was living with him got saved by the same, same guys. <laughs> so I did again. The only thing that was reasonable, I moved into a fraternity. <laughs> okay, here I'm going to be safe. But the, but the interesting thing was those guys continued to pursue me in kindness. They, they were so nice to me. They invited me to events, to ball games, to, to meetings, and I said no, most of the time. And when I said yes, I probably didn't even show up. I was not very nice, but they were incredible. They continued to be involved in my life. Until one point, I finally said, okay, I, I'm, I'm ready to hear about this. What do I do? And they said, well, we'd like you to read the New Testament. I'm like, okay, okay where do I start? They said, start with the Gospel of John, and, and you read the New Testament, and then we'll talk about it. Well, I I did. I read the Gospel of John, and I thought, wow, this Jesus is a pretty good guy. He's pretty smart. Um, But that's all. Um, I mean, how could all of the Jews throughout history have been wrong? How could my family be wrong? He's just a good guy. In fact, I decided that I was going to have a big four. Most Jews have a big three. Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Big three. I was going to have a big four. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jesus. There's the solution. <laughs> Unfortunately, it was a very schizophrenic life. See, because when I, when I was with my fraternity brothers, I kind of acted like them. And when I was with those Christian guys, I kind of was like nice, you know, and I acted like them. And I, I was living on the fence, and it was very uncomfortable. Well, I also had a friend in, at, at home who was recently saved, Um, He was a football player at Boston College. He got saved through the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And uh, he started to share with me and and talk to me. He wasn't quite as nice as the other guys, but um, because he said to me at one point, he was so frustrated. He said to me, Neil, someday God is going to put you on your back and you're going to have to look up and see who he really is. Kate and I got married a couple months after that. Three months later, I ruptured a disc in my back. And I mean, it was blown. I could not move. I was stuck on the couch. Um, Well, one of his friends, who I also knew, uh, he and his wife came to visit me when I was um, laying on the couch, and they brought me a book called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And I honestly, I I had nothing else to do. I I couldn't even lift my head to watch TV, so I, I read the book. And very first chapter, Lewis says, I want to talk to those of you who believe that Jesus is a great man. A great prophet. I thought, huh, that's me. And he said, I want you to know you have a problem. <laughs> he said, Yeah, the problem is that Jesus said he's God. And anyone who says they're God, there can only be three choices. They are either a liar, they know they're not God, and they yet they say it. They're a lunatic, they think they are God and they're really not, or they really are who they say they are. And they, There's no other choice. Well, I had seen the impact that Jesus had had on the lives of these guys and how their lives had dramatically changed. Both my two roommates and these other guys and my friend at home, they were new people. I knew that they weren't following a liar or a lunatic. So I I remember thinking, Lord, I don't understand. I don't understand how... All of the Jews throughout history could have missed this. How, how my grandfather, who was such a religious man, how could he have missed this? But I know that Jesus is not a liar. I know he's not a lunatic. He must be who he says he is. He must be my Lord and Savior. I don't understand. Please open my eyes to see this truth. Um, I, I remember thinking, I've got to get down on my knees because that was the only way I'd ever seen something like this happen. Uh, I wanted to make sure it was going to (laughs) work. And I couldn't. I couldn't get off the couch. Um, But I just prayed that prayer, and God answered it. And he opened my eyes to see Jesus for who he really is. Where was I? (laughs) Let's get back to chapter 13. So after Paul's history lesson... He shows that his message is the natural sequel um, to Old Testament history, that God's faithfulness to his promises to Israel were ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Let's go ahead and read uh, the rest of his message, beginning in verse 23. of this man's offering, speaking of David, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am unworthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem and are now his witnesses to the people, and we bring you the good news that God has promised to the fathers. This he has also fulfilled to us in their children by raising Jesus. Paul presents his sermon in such a way that he connects the dots of Old Testament history reaching the conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah. God's one and only provision for the forgiveness of sins. He says that Jesus is who he says he is, first through the, Baptist, through the testimony of John the Baptist, then through the testimony of fulfilled prophecy, and then finally through the resurrection, through the fulfillment of prophecy in Christ's resurrection. Now, he starts with John the Baptist because of his transitional role between the Old and the New Testament. John was the link connecting the period of the church with Israel, And he was the one that God used to announce the appearance of the Messiah. But John made it clear he was not the one that Israel was waiting for. But he preached repentance so the Jews would be ready when Jesus appeared. So John the Baptist was the first source of of testimony. The second was fulfilled prophecy. He says that when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem condemned Jesus to die, it was a fulfillment of prophecy. When they took his body from the cross and laid it in a tomb, it was a fulfillment of prophecy. Those prophecies and dozens more provide overwhelming evidence that Jesus is, in fact, Israel's Messiah. But then in verse 30, he gives the greatest testimony of all, and that is the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus. In Romans chapter 1, verse 4, Paul, speaking of Jesus, said, He was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So not only did more than 500 witnesses see him after he was risen, but Paul shares a number of prophecies leading to the resurrection itself. Let's continue on beginning in verse 33. He says, This uh, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised them from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David, Therefore he says also in another psalm you will not let your holy one see corruption. So he gives us three Old Testament prophecies that lead to the resurrection. First from Psalm 2 that says the Messiah is to be God's son. He is to be born. Uh, the word for in scripture is his incarnation. Then he quotes from Psalm 55 verse 3 that this Messiah who is to come will sit on David's throne forever. And then he goes to Psalm 16 and says that, that this Messiah would be raised from the dead. You see, David was Israel's greatest king, yet he died and his body corrupted in the grave. But Jesus, who was raised from the dead, is the fulfillment of the prophecy that says God's Holy One would not see corruption. When we come to the next two verses, verses 38 and 39, we come to the heart of Paul's message. Everything that he has shared up to this point is leading to this proclamation of the gospel. The history lesson, the testimony of John the Baptist, the testimony of fulfilled prophecy, all comes together in verses 38 and 39. So let's read those together. For David, after he had served the purpose, of starting in 36, of his own generation fell asleep, was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. And here it is. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now, we have to remember that those hearing this message were men who honored the law of Moses. They believed that God's greatest gift to Israel was the Ten Commandments. All their lives, they had tried to live up to those commandments. Even though they knew they failed daily, they still believed that the only way, the only way to be right with God was to obey those commandments, was to be good and to try their best. But Paul comes with some really bad news. He says they can't make it to God on those terms. They cannot be accepted by God by trying to be good. That those 10 commandments can only condemn them because no matter how hard they try, they can never fulfill them completely. But then he gives them the even better news. That God did provide a way to accept sinful mankind and that Jesus is the way. Because Jesus bore the punishment for their sin in their place. By believing that, they could stand before God as if they had kept the whole law. As if they had never sinned. See, the law could never do that. Only God in Jesus could do it for them. So Paul presents the gospel by first giving the bad news, then the really good news, but then he follows it up with a a warning. Let's look at um, verse 40. This warning comes actually from the prophet Habakkuk. Uh, chapter 1, verse 5. So, verse 40, chapter 13. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perished, and perish, for I am doing work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells you. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. See, in Habakkuk's day, it was about 600 years before Paul's message to the Jews in Antioch, the Jews had consistently rejected God. They had rejected the message of his prophets. They had rejected his word. They had followed after other gods to such an extent that God finally had to bring the Babylonian people a ruthless and evil group led by King Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC into Jerusalem to destroy the city, destroy the temple, and eventually take all of the survivors into exile. The warning that Paul gives to the people of Antioch here is that if they fail to accept the message of mercy and forgiveness in Jesus, they too would accept God's, would receive God's judgment. Although God is a God of such great grace in Jesus, because he is perfectly holy, he is also a God of justice. All sin must be judged if not atoned for by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And unfortunately, the rest of this passage shows that Habakkuk's prophecy is fulfilled right there in Antioch as the Jews rejected the words of mercy in Jesus. Let's read the rest of the passage beginning in verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken First to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are, re- we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews, in the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. See, the Jews of Antioch couldn't accept a Messiah who embraced Gentiles. It was fine for him to preach the coming of the Messiah to the Jews, but as far as they were concerned, proclaiming that God accepted the Gentiles on an equal basis was blasphemy. The Jews rejected the gospel that was open to all people without distinction, but the Gentiles heard the message and they rejoiced. Go back to verse 48 for a moment. Luke says, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to salvation believed. Here we see a very clear evidence of the both and of salvation. Both human responsibility and God's election. Both are true. These Gentiles took an active role in believing the gospel. But The only reason they did was because it was in response to God's convicting them of their sin and appointing them to eternal life. In other words, God was the one who allowed them to believe that all salvation is by the grace of God. And God had appointed some of these Gentiles to hear and believe this message. But unfortunately, we see two Different responses to the message of the gospel. We see rejoicing and acceptance, some Jews and some Gentiles, and we see rejection and persecution by the majority of the Jews. It's because the gospel is like a knife and it cuts right through society. Sometimes it even, even cuts right through a family. In some, it awakens faith and in others, only animosity. Some will decide for, and some will decide against. Some will be released from bondage to sin and death, and some will turn away and may even eventually harden their hearts. Those of us here today, Jew or Gentile, who have responded in faith, who have been appointed graciously by God to eternal life, Have the great privilege of living a life, as Tom said last week, as an I love you back to God. I I see three specific things in this passage that show us how we can do that. How we can live a life that says to God, I love you, I am so grateful for what you have done for me. And these are things that we are to do out of love, not out of obligation, The very first one is that that the God who appointed the end, those who will believe, is also the God who appointed the means. That that means that those of us who have believed must live a life in such a way to make the invisible God visible. We must speak the gospel. We must live the gospel. We must be salt and light in a dark and thirsty world. And you know what? What? Some people will hear it, and some people will reject it. Some will even reject us. But we must continue to share and to demonstrate love. Don't give up, okay? I am sure that if there isn't more than a couple of people in this entire room who there isn't someone in their life that they have been sharing the truth with and that have turned from it or have rejected it, don't give up. It was five years from the time that those two guys walked into my room until that person handed me the the book um, by C.S. Lewis. Five years, and in those five years, those guys continued in persistence and prayer and love to make a difference in my life until finally God opened my eyes to see the truth of who he was. Don't give up. Don't give up. The second thing I I see here is found in verse 43. Go back there with me for a moment. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Those of us who have received God's grace in order to believe must continue in the grace of God. And in the next section, those next five verses, from verses 44 to 49, four times God speaks of the power of His Word. It is by His Word that we continue in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is by knowing and studying God's word, by immersing ourselves into the truths of his word, that we can live a life of I love you back to God. We can continue in the grace of God. We must know God's word and we must obey it. We must soak our hearts and our minds in what God and Christ has done for us and then learn how to live by it. And that is found, how we do it is right there in his word. Let's look at 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. In another passage in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16 Paul says this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Those words, um, dwell richly, uh, in the Greek, literally mean to be at home in. And you know, home is, is the place that we're most familiar. It's typically the place that's, that's most important to us. Even after a long, wonderful vacation, it feels kind of good to get home. Home is important. Look, it's why ET needed a phone, and, and Dorothy needed her slippers. When, um, when Kate and I lived in Boston, uh, one of my favorite things to do was to go to Fenway Park, uh, watch the Red Sox uh, play baseball. Um, Fenway Park is one of the oldest uh, stadiums in, in all of major league sports. Um, you've heard of the concept of home field advantage. Well, it's, it's really doubly true at Fenway because of the, of the unusual design of the stadium. Um, and, and no one, in my mind, exemplified the idea of home field advantage more than Karl Yastrzemski who was the uh, Hall of Fame left fielder who played for the Red Sox in the 60s and 70s. Uh, He he played and practiced so often at at Fenway that he knew every contour of that 37-foot high, 240-foot wide wall they called the Green Monster. No matter where the ball was hit off of that wall, he would position himself in the exact right place to get that ball and fire it into second base and either get the guy trying to stretch it into a double or hold him to a single. There is no way that the visiting left fielder could possibly know that wall. Why? Because he wasn't at home at Fenway. Home is the place that we know the best And God is saying, if we want to continue in his grace, we need to know the word like we know our home. Those words richly dwell in the Greek are a, a present active imperative, meaning that it's a command and it's something that we're to do continually. Guys, this amazing book, it is an insight into true life. It's unrivaled anywhere. In fact, the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 12 says, the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joint and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There's nothing Nothing that matches it in its view of reality. And it is at home in our lives when it is at the very heart of who we are, when we daily absorb it and then do what it says. If we want to continue in God's grace, we need to commit to making this very treasure at home in our lives. And then finally, verse 52. The last verse of the chapter, let's read that. It says, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Those who believed, those who were left behind amidst the persecution, they were filled with joy. I believe that the most important and telltale sign of the presence of the Holy Spirit in a person's heart It's not speaking in tongues. It's not prophesying. It's joy. Joy is not the same as happiness. Joy is a sense of well-being in our hearts as we delight in God regardless of our circumstances. So how do you do that? This is a challenging, difficult, broken world. How do we have joy? We remember, we remember God's faithfulness throughout history to his people. We remember God's promises that have been fulfilled over and over and over again. We remember the testimony of a man like John the Baptist. And then we remember that we are sinners who have received mercy and not justice that we have been adopted, well, at least you have, been adopted into God's family. I was born into it. (laughs) But now all of us are sons and daughters of God. We're his beloved children. We have literally, literally been brought from death to life Our destiny has been changed from hell to heaven. And we've received an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and waiting for us in heaven. We know that God, who promised to finish this good work in us, will bring it to completion. And that he who went to be with the Father is preparing a place for us so that we can be with him also. We need to remember those things even in the midst of those very challenging circumstances, which comes no matter what. They come. But he's there. He promises to never leave us and never forsake us. So guys, as we think about this incredible message of the gospel and our response as living lives as an I love you back to God, let's continue to share the testimony of truth of who he is Let's continue to live a life that makes the invisible God visible. Let's make the word of God so at home in our lives. It's so familiar to us that we respond to it without even having to think. And then let's be joyful in such a way that those around us will see us and give glory to our Father in heaven. Now, remember I said that there there are two responses to the gospel, always, so there are people in this room today who, who would say, you know, I, I really think my good works outweigh my bad, and I think God's going to accept me based on that. I, I don't believe necessarily what, what you've said and what Paul has said here in Acts 13. Remember that God made it very clear that you can't make it to him by your own works, that you must have someone to stand in your place, a perfect someone, and that is Jesus. I pray, don't do what I did. Don't take five years. I wasted five years. Don't do it. Listen and believe. If God is stirring even a little bit in your heart, that's the Holy Spirit. Just let go of the other and believe that Jesus is who he says he is, your Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, Paul's persistent, powerful message of the gospel. Thank you for reminding us of your faithfulness throughout history and your goodness to your people and your grace. Lord, I pray as your people we will continue in that grace. And we will, out of love, and decide to share your truth and learn your word, and live with joy. For those of us who are here today who struggle with this message, I pray, Lord, you would open their hearts, appoint them to salvation, and allow them to believe. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.